I don't think that you develop your legend by never failing. Well, I actually think you kind of like you build a legend by running toward the impossible mm. and then proving to everyone it was always possible. Hey, it's great to have you back for another episode of the Craig Rochelle Leadership Podcast. Uh, it is my sincere passion to help you grow in your leadership because everyone wins when the leader gets better. If you're new to our leadership community, let me make a promise to you. My promise is to deliver a new episode to you on the first Thursday of every single month. I also want to encourage you to get the leader guide. This is super important. The leader guide has a detailed summary of the content that we cover. There's detailed notes and questions for you. Also to cover with your team, you can go to life.church slash leadership podcast to get the leader guide. That's life.church slash leadership podcast. Let me tell you about our guest today. We've been friends for a long time, and I got to tell you, this guy is fascinating. Erwin McManus, he is very talented. He's a pastor. He's an author, a consultant, and an artist. Erwin has spent the last 30 years consulting and coaching CEOs, professional athletes, celebrities, and organizations from the NFL all the way to the Pentagon. Like, dang, that's important. His newest book, it came out on October 3rd. You can get it now. It's called Mind Shift. It doesn't take a genius to think like one. Erwin's definitely a genius, and I promise this episode is going to help you grow. So let's go now to the interview. Erwin McManus. Hey, it's great to have you on the podcast, man. Man, it's so good to be with you. Yeah, this is long overdue. You're uh, you're uh, one of the greatest leaders that I know, and I'm honored to know you up close. And the, the closer that we get, the more I love you and respect you. And so thank you for taking time to invest in our community. Oh, man, it's my, it's my privilege. And uh, I tell people all the time, because people ask me, you know, who do I respect? Who are the leaders I trust? Uh, Craig Rochelle is always number one on my list. You're, you're very kind. Well, congratulations. Your book is out, Mind Shift. It doesn't take a genius to think like one. And I am, uh, I'm actually thankful that you let me read this ahead of time. So I got to sneak peek on uh, some of your brilliant work before it even came out. And I want to congratulate you on this very important work and talk more about it. But I want to start a little bit about your leadership journey. First of all, for anyone in our community that might not know you, Erwin is a creative genius. He is, he, he's a rare mix of business brilliance with artistic creativity and with um, very strong spiritual values, which makes you unusually effective in a lot of environments where other traditional leaders are not effective. So with that lead in, uh, as we talk about leadership, I'd love to know, Erwin, when is the first time in your life when you recognize, oh my gosh, I might have the ability to lead? Yeah, I was thinking about that, Craig, you know, when you start reflecting on your uh, childhood, and I think that um, my first awareness was, I don't know if I'm really well-crafted to follow. <laughs> and, uh, um, and, and that's kind of ironic because I always called myself a very good follower in terms of when I worked on someone's team, I, I would really work to be a great teammate. When I had a boss, I tried to be an extraordinary employee. And and I don't actually think you can lead well if you don't learn how to follow well. Yeah, exactly. Yes. But there's also like that contrast when I was um, young, I realized I saw the world differently. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't that I wasn't cooperative on a team. It's that um, where most people were going, I wasn't interested in going. Mm-hmm. And so some of it was early on, I realized that 
if I saw a different kind of world or I saw a different kind of life and no one was moving in that direction, it would require me to, to pioneer or to move quickly. And so I can look back all the way to elementary school. Um, I started my first little business when I was a kid. I had a bank account. I bought my own equipment. You know, um, you know, I had a, a, a had staff. I mean, it's and I'm 11, 12 years old, and and so I realized very early on that I had sort of entrepreneurial uh, leadership um, gifts. And I think when I was in eighth grade, I was the track coach for the sixth grade elementary track team. And so somehow, even at that age, I had been identified. And that helps sometimes when someone sees that you have a capacity to do something and invites you to take it on. Hmm. And I love coaching. I, I, um, I just found incredible satisfaction in helping other people achieve uh, their own personal greatness. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and I realized that I have a, a vicarious joy in creating environments where other people are great. I don't personally need to be great uh, for me to experience a ridiculous amount of happiness or joy in my life. So it was very, very early on in my life. And, and then also, you know how you grew up playing pickup sports? You know, we, we grew up playing pickup football, pickup track, and and I was always the last person picked. Hmm. My, my brother was always the captain of one team, and this um, kid next door, he was always the captain of the other team. And my brother wouldn't pick me, so the other guy wouldn't pick me because he didn't have to waste a pick on me. <laughs> and so I spent my childhood being the last person picked. And I remember one day thinking to myself, I'm done being the last person picked. So I... We got, went outside, we all met in the street where we all played ball. And I remember saying, I'm the other captain. And Hugh goes, thank God, I'm so tired of losing to your brother. And, I, and he was the first person my brother picked. And I picked backwards. I picked the worst players first. Hmm. And my brother was a superior athlete. He was incredibly strategic as a thinker. And he, he wanted everything he did. And so I took the worst players, the people who always picked last, and, and even in our street world, I began developing talent. Hmm. And, um, and I knew if I took the worst players and I won, it was a devastating, <laughs> devastating loss for my brother. And so I really realized early on that I had some leadership instincts, mm -hmm. but they were a little bit counterintuitive. Hmm. I didn't lead to win. I really led to elevate other people. And I think that was some somehow something in me very early. So uh, there, there's a couple things you said that, that stand out to me. The, one of the things I think a lot of leaders miss is you talked about being good at following before you were good at leading. And so yeah. I think a lot of people will say, I want to be a leader of people. I want to be up front. I want to be in charge. <laughs> and someone said one time, I'd, I'd give them credit, but if you want to be great at being over, you need to be great at being under people. Yep. And that's that's a really good place to start because when you're under people, you learn oftentimes what is it, what they do effectively. You also learn what you don't want to do when you're over people. And so yep. you started there. And then a couple of other things that stood out to me, Erwin, is that you intuitively saw something in yourself, but it was not normal. And I think there's going to be a lot of leaders that will be encouraged by that because sometimes the most effective leaders are the most extreme. And there's a lot of people, if you're kind of normal, you blend in. But yeah. if, you're, if you're a little bit odd, if you see the world a little, in a little different way, you tend to stand out. And so you had the courage at a very early age to say, I do see the world differently. And that's not bad. It could be a strength. Yeah. And the third thing that you said that I thought is really, really important is you, you really do see yourself as adding value to other people. 
And Maxwell says it all the time. The best leaders say it all the time. You know, it's never about your importance. It's always about adding value. And that that really does make a big difference. And that's one of the reasons why you're great. I'd love to know a little bit about how you do that. Because right now, you coach anybody. You, you'll interact. My team was telling me when they interact with you that you were building into them. So someone mm. comes in that's just with somebody else and you're, in, you're building them. And then you'll coach and counsel world-class athletes, CEOs. Tell me about your mindset of coaching. What are you, what are you, what are you thinking about when you're meeting with people? How, how can we be better at coaching based on what you've learned? Yeah, I, I think the key to high-level coaching is high-level thinking, elite, uh, listening. Hmm. Before you get to high-level thinking, you have to get to high-level listening. Good. And I always walk in with a chaotic blank slate in a sense. So I'm nervous because I really want to bring value to that person's life. And so I, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that I, I walk into a, a meeting with someone who's really a top tier leader and don't feel a sense of nervousness uh, because I realize I'm interacting with someone who thinks that are at a really high level already. It's so easy to coach people from below average to average and really easy to coach people from average to above average. And it's not that difficult to coach people from above average to good. And what, what I've learned in my own life is that, that the people who are achieving at the highest level have almost zero margin for error. Mm-hmm. And that's the space I love. I love the space where leaders have almost no margin for error. Mm-hmm. And so their thinking has to be incredibly, um, you know, granular and even detailed. And um, there, ha- they ha- there has to be a mental acuity there where they're really aware of, the, of what's important in the details. And so one of the things I do right away is I just go in without, without any preconceived notions of what they need. I just go in to listen. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do use some psychological assessments, but they're really there just as ink blots so that that person can find the space where they identify readily and begin to unwrap who they are. And so I, I, pay, I find ways just to get a person talking to begin to tell me their story. I start looking for recurring patterns and I, and I look for recurring patterns that identify self-limiting structures. And I look for recurring patterns that identify um, structures that really are leveraged for success. And because they're, they're both there. And, and a lot of times what happens is that people who have achieved an extraordinary level of success have some incredibly powerful internal structures for success. They just can't identify what it is that keeps causing them to fall apart, Mm -hmm. what keeps bringing internal distress, Mm -hmm. or what keeps uh, them from having a level of clarity that you would think they would have. And and I just think it's like for all of us, when when you're the fish, you don't see the water. And when, even when you're a top tier leader, it's just really helpful mm-hmm. when someone listens to you, um, you know, pays attention to the roadmap of your inner world and then begins to say, Hey, this is what I, I hear you saying. This is what I, uh, this is what I see that you're dealing with. And, and then I ask him, does this resonate with you? I don't assume I'm right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'll have, sometimes I'll have someone say, Oh, how did you know this? In fact, that's when I know I'm really on. Um, one of the people I coach, I love coaching at, and he's at the highest level and, and, uh, coaching in the world. And, and he kept saying to me, 
how could you know this? How could you know this? How could you know this? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm a deeply spiritual person. So I think I, I get to integrate some of the spiritual gifts that God has given me with some of the psychological tools that I've learned and, you know, some of the leadership constructs that, you know, I've um, learned over time. And a lot of times I just sense that I can see into a person and when they tell me, how, how did you know this? I know I'm on track because what they're, what they're really saying is I hide this from myself. Hmm. And, and the moment you said it, I looked in the mirror and I saw myself and there are other people Craig, where I'm like, how do I find my way into this person's inner world? They're just so blocked off and so locked out. And 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 sometimes what I find is I can help them solve a problem. They're not going to let me into their inner world. They're not going to let me into their their soul space. And but they have critical challenges in front of them, huge obstacles, and they're feeling the weight of it. So with them, I just go ahead and try to help them make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I help them solve a huge business problem. I help them make a decision that catalyzes massive momentum. And when I do that, they always come back and go, okay, how did you do that? And then I go, um, and they said, can you do that more? I said, yes, but does that give me the credibility now to have a conversation about what's really going on mm-hmm. inside of you? Mm-hmm. And because I know in the end, what that leader needs is internal structures that can carry the way to success, not just how to become more successful. There's about a hundred follow-up questions I want to ask you right now because that that there's so much brilliance there. I want to comment on a couple of things, Aaron. First of all, I want our, our community to hear the fact that you said you're nervous when you go in. And oh, absolutely. Yeah, and so I think that's really important because a lot of times we think if we're going to be really effective at something, we're not going to be nervous. And the reality is when you really care and when you're really good, you're often nervous. And so yeah. if we had more time, I'd to kind of dive into how do you deal with your nerves, but I think I've got more important things I want to ask you, but that that's one thing. The second thing I want to highlight is that you're working with top-level leaders that are seeking out coaching, and I, I want to just drive this in because there are some leaders right now that think, well, you know, um, I don't really need coaching. I'm pretty good, blah, 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 blah. And uh, someone told me years ago, Erwin, that, like if you look at a flag football team full of seven-year-olds, there's typically one coach, maybe an assistant coach. When you get into high school, college, or pros, you've got multiple coaches and you've got individual coaches for offense, for defense, for special teams. You've got a kicking coach, you've got a quarterback coach, you've got a pitching coach, you've got a batting coach, on and on and on. So the better you are, the more specific coaching you get. And I just want to highlight that as well because there are some people out there that may think, I don't need coaching. And that's maybe because you don't know what you don't know that the better you are, the more you're going to seek it out. But I, I do want to dive in, and you actually talk about this concept in your book, Mind Shift. You, you talk about the structures that we have in our mind, and I love this, that you you said you're looking for the patterns or the structures that are limiting their success or that are really structured to catapult someone forward. Can you give me some more insight into that, and um, how did you discover this, and what do you mean by it? What, do you, what are you looking for in seeing? Yeah, I think one thing... Craig, is that sometimes um, highly successful people apply the same strategy in every arena of their life and it doesn't work. You can, you know, let, let, uh, I have this process called the seven frequencies of communication where I help identify uh, the natural frequencies from which people communicate. It's, let's say your natural frequency is command and you're running a company. And so when you're using a commander frequency, it can work fantastically well if you are 
you know, the captain of a yacht team or, you know, your Olympic rowing team or, um, and, but when you go home, if you're using that frequency with your wife, Mm -hmm. it's going to destroy your marriage. And if you're using it with your kids, it's going to really shatter the the psyche and and emotional development of your kids. And what happens a lot of times is that um, a lot of business leaders who are highly driven type A, they have a, they have a recurring pattern that's being affirmed by success. Mm-hmm. And they think, oh, this is the same pattern I can bring into my relationships, or this is the same pattern I can bring into my emotional health. I can just power myself to not be depressed, but you can't. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can just power myself to deal with my lack of identity and this incredible feeling of lack of self-worth. I can buy enough cars or planes or yachts to... um finally help me overcome that deep sense of um, inadequacy and it doesn't work. And so some of it is helping a person realize that a, a strategy that works in one area doesn't work holistically in every area of your life. And, 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 I, and that's one of the most difficult things uh, I, I think to deal with because I work with a lot of guys whose companies are all like a hundred million and up. And, and a lot of them are under 40 years old. They, they, they gain a massive amount of wealth and success early. And it's incredible how many of them have already been divorced even multiple times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How many of them have just chosen to move into relationships as a commodity? And they, and they, they try to play it up as if they're just, you know, you know, playing the field. But what's actually going on is they've lost any sense of confidence that they can have a sustainable relationship mm-hmm. and, and deal with the, the, the real issues within their own character or their own psychological structure. And, and you know, so that's some of the stuff I, I, I really try to work with. But, but really the book deals with 13 mental structures, even though there's 12 chapters and then chapter zero. Because I always have a chapter zero because the first chapter is a shift in reality. And, you know, Craig, you and I both have similar paths in that we're both followers of Jesus mm-hmm. and we've both pastored. And, and we both work in a context where people have a deep faith. And you know, as well as I do, that one of the challenging things is when you deal, when you're dealing with people who really do love God and really have a deep and honest faith in Jesus, but they're not changing and they're not growing. And, and, and sometimes it, it's the default mode is almost like to create a, a mythology or a superstition. You just need to pray more or believe more or have more faith, but it's always an indictment as if that person doesn't have enough of that. Mm-hmm. Rather than being honest and saying, you've developed some really unhealthy mental structures and those internal structures are what are actually limiting you from experiencing the life that God wants for you. And so the reason I wrote MindShift was both for people who have faith and those who do not, uh, because I found that the same mental structures are the limiting structures, both for people who believe and those who do not mm, believe. Interesting. I, I'd like to hear more about that. And so MindShift really, it, it was born out of years of research, um, yeah. both in your own life and then working with people. So I'm guessing that of the dozen or so you talk about, that there's probably one or two that you see most often. We have um, ingrained a, uh, a message we say to ourselves over and over again, or a way of mm-hmm. thinking that's counterproductive to future success, or even a way that's counterproductive to thinking to of um, living in a way that is sustainable. 
Would you say there, there's one or maybe two that stand out as being the most common things you see in high-performing leaders? Yeah, it, my mind immediately leaps to the chapter um, called, You Are Your Own Ceiling. Uh, I, I'm an immigrant from El Salvador. You know, Spanish was my first language. English was my second language. I never knew my real father. I have one brief memory of him, but I'm not sure if it's a memory or a story I've heard so much that it feels like a memory. My mom remarried a guy involved in what we called creative underground economies. Mm -hmm. And he took us to a police station and convinced the police that we were um, robbed and that we had no identification. So I walked out McManus. So I go from being Spanish, Cardona, to walking at Irish, McManus. I live with this alias all of my life. My mom and stepdad hope that I don't remember my real father and my life before them. So they make up a scenario that they were always there and that my past memories were false. Hmm. Going through all of that, Craig, I ended up in a psychiatric chair by the time I was 10 years old, wow. in and out of a hospital for months and for what they told me were psychosomatic um, illnesses. I, I, I was as shattered and broken a human being as I think possible. I wasn't on the brink of neurosis. I was on the brink of psychosis. I still, to this day, struggle with a level of night terrors where I'm wide awake and the nightmares are still with me because of trauma and experiences in my childhood. It would be so easy to point to any one of those experiences as my explanation for why I underachieved, mm -hmm. for why I never became a, the full expression of my potential, for why my talent was buried under the rubble of my brokenness. But once I took responsibility for my life and I accepted that I was my own ceiling, I began realizing that external circumstances, as tragic and traumatic as they are, will never be the actual root cause for my ceiling in my life. My ceiling is my response to the circumstances. My ceiling is my refusal to allow those circumstances to define me and to be defined by my overcoming those circumstances. And I find that high capacity leaders take complete responsibility for their lives, even in areas where they should not. Hmm. And I think the, the, the adage that even if it's not your fault, it's your responsibility is one of the most important mental shifts. It is the mind shift that I think may be most significant. I spent a lot of my childhood blaming. And you know, the truth was other people were to blame. When you're eight, you're not to blame for all the trauma and all the tragedy and all the pain you go through. But it doesn't matter if it's your fault or not. What matters is that who you become is your responsibility. And one of the things people don't realize is that whenever you blame someone else, you are actually transferring your power to them. If you're what's holding me back, then you're the only one that can set me free. Mm -hmm. Hmm. If you're the cause of my ceiling, then you're the only one that can remove that ceiling. Well, when you take responsibility for your life, you are actually reclaiming your power. And now that ceiling is a ceiling of your own making. So you can decide to remove it. That's so powerful. And, you know, I, I, I've heard even more details about your childhood and what you overcame and it's special, and and I I can imagine some people with similar stories of brokenness that 
that builds their faith to know that whatever, wherever you started, you don't have to stay there. I, I'm, I'd like to kind of process this with you. I don't think I've ever talked out loud about this with anybody else, but I find in my own leadership, I do have ceilings. And, and I generally mm-hmm. feel like that I am the biggest limiting factor, and I'll just make it spiritual to what God wants to do through our church. Yeah. That, that is, is me, my mindset, my limitations, my fear, my hesitation, my insecurity, on and on and on. And so if you put it in a business sense, I think for, I might say to some business leaders, you are the greatest limiting factor to what you could do through your business. Then you find a breakthrough. For me, Erwin, it's like I'll talk to someone like you. I'll look for in some area I need to grow in a leader that's not one or two steps ahead of me, but are 10 steps ahead of me because I want to get what they, I want to get from them what they, they give me. I call it the gift of disorientation. It's not mm. tweaks. Like I'm going to improve this a little bit or make this 5% better, but I'm going mind blowing. I never thought of that. And mm-hmm. so there are categories of your leadership where you blow my mind. And what will happen is when I get a breakthrough, I feel like I get above a ceiling and what used to be a ceiling becomes a floor. Yeah. And I'll even say that I'm standing on a new floor. Then there's a new ceiling. What I'd like for you to do right now is talk to someone who is has a new ceiling and tell them how do they identify it? What do they need to do to break through? Do you read a book? Do you find mentoring? Do you get counseling? What do you do to break through those ceilings when you become the ceiling again? Well, if someone's going to ask me, what's the first thing I need to do to break through my ceiling? I'm going to say, you need to pick up my shelf. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and read that. And but I would agree with that, you. It's a very good book. I was... I was uh, Strangely, at a bachelor party uh, about six months ago, that was kind of weird because I've never been to a bachelor party. I'm 65 years old, and that's not when I should start going to bachelor parties. The fact that that was your first bachelor party makes me have about five follow-up questions, of which I'll ask you after this interview. Keep going. And and so at this, you know, my wife's asking me, what are you doing going to a bachelor? (laughs) I said, it's my friend. I I, got to go support Joel. And and so it ends up being a makeshift mastermind. Where he texts me, since you know, because you're coming, would you do a three-hour session, you know, for all my men? So I'm like, oh, okay, this mastermind looked this uh, bachelor party looks a lot like a mastermind. And then after the three hours, oh well, Irwin's still here, so we could have a couple of hours of Q and A. And then since he's here, he can do some one-on-one coaching. But one of the guys asked this question. He said, um, I have an opportunity in my in my company to um, elevate and have a, a greater role. But I just keep hitting this wall, and I just keep hitting this wall, and I just keep hitting this wall, and I cannot figure out how to break through this wall. And so I just took him through a small process. This is what I would say to someone. All right, take a moment and imagine your life on the other side of that wall, on the other side of that ceiling. Imagine how it affects your, your role in business, your, your marriage, your family, uh, your quality of life, everything. And I took a moment, and I said, can you see it? And he goes, I can see it. And then I said, do you want that life? And he paused and he said, no. And I said, well, you are the wall. And, and, he, and he just goes, I'm the wall. And I go, yeah, most of the time when we keep hitting a ceiling and hitting a ceiling and hitting a ceiling that we can't break through, it's because we really don't want to go to the other side. Interesting. It's either it requires too much risk, mm-hmm. too much sacrifice, too much uncertainty, too much change, uh, whatever it may be, too much, you know, uh, too much emotional energy. And, and, and Craig, sometimes I have to stop and ask myself, and in fact, this is a question I love asking people. I don't want you to think of all the scenarios for failure. I want you to think about what will your life look like 
if you have 100% success. Because you may not be preparing for success. Mm -hmm. You may only mm -hmm. be preparing either for failure or mitigated success. Mm -hmm. And what you really don't want is the outcomes of that success. And so you're going to, you're going to keep holding yourself up. And, you know, I, I have a friend, he came to my house. He listens to, you know, our, our, uh, our MindShift podcast and reads all my stuff. And, and he said, okay, I feel like I'm underachieving and, you know, I need you to speak into my life and, and tell me, you know, what do you think is really my ceiling? What's limiting me? And, and I love this guy. And I said, well, you have a great marriage. You're like one of the best husbands I know. And you have an incredible family. I love your kids. You actually have a like a beautiful life. So you're just a really safe person. You just, you're not dangerous in any way whatsoever. <laughs> and, uh, and he just looked at me like a deer in the headlights because he's not dangerous. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, he had to really process that. And I, and I sent him a text later. I felt so bad. I said, hey, it's okay for you not to be dangerous if that's the life you want. Like you, just because you're my friend and you see the way I live my life, it doesn't mean this is like the right rhythm of life for you. You have to decide whether you want more. You and mm -hmm. your wife should sit down mm -hmm. and have a conversation mm -hmm. about is our life exactly the way we want it to be? Don't feel like you need to take more risks or be more ambitious or make more sacrifices just because uh, you feel the gravitational pull of my life. And this has been a hard thing for me, Craig, because I think everyone should aspire to be more, mm -hmm. to do more, to risk more. But I also, with time, have realized that the life that I'm compelled to live isn't the life everyone's compelled sure. to live. Right. And sometimes I think we pretend that we're hitting ceilings we can't break through, but mm -hmm. we haven't yet decided we want the life on the other side. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That, it's interesting because yeah, I, I think to break through most ceilings, it's gonna we have to break through an insecurity, or you have mm -hmm. to you may have to remove someone that's not performing well and you don't want to do it, or you have to undo a promise that you made like we're never going to do this now you have to do it and and, and it can be pain <laughs> you can be painful. And yes. so I always say to myself that the difference between where you are and where you could be might be the pain you're unwilling to endure. And so that, you, that's you, so true, right? You have to step into the pain sometimes. And, and for me, it's um, you know chapters one and chapter three are like um, an ink blot because chapter one in my shift is it's all about people, and then chapter three is you can't take everyone with you. Hmm. And I put a chapter in between so people could have a breather between those two, that dichotomy. There's some leaders who are um, so type A, they need chapter one. It's all about people. And they need to be reminded that people are not a commodity. They are the economy. They are the value. But there are some people who need chapter three. There's so much about people and relationships that they surrender their dreams and their goals. And actually they surrender their purpose and intention for life because they're trying to take everyone with them. And they don't realize that everyone can go or even wants to go where they're going. And I just recently in our, in our space called the arena asked people, are you a chapter one or a chapter three? And, and a lot of pastors who are really such good human beings, I know pastors get a bad rap, but most of the pastors I know are really kind, I loving, agree. caring, uh, beautiful human beings. Yes. 
and they're trapped in chapter three. Mm -hmm. They think they're supposed to take everyone with them. And they need to know that one of the painful transitions of leadership is letting people go. It's not really leaving them behind, it's letting them go. Jesus left the crowd sometime, right? He'd, he'd walk yeah. away to go be alone. Yeah, that, that's very true. And there, there was a phrase you said earlier that really jumped out at me I wanted to ask you about. And uh, let me give you a little bit of a lead in first. You live in LA, you interact with a lot of very well-known people. There's, there's more of them there. It doesn't make you better, you're just kind of in the middle of it, right? And yeah. I would guess that the, when you're around hyper-successful people, there are very few of them that are happy, very few that are content, very few that have good relationships. A lot of them are depressed, deal with anxiety, massive problems. You said in there a little phrase, something about preparing for success. Mm -hmm. What I want to do is I want to talk to our community right now because we have a lot of people. I just like to envision they're, uh, they have a higher than average IQ. They've got better than mm -hmm. average work ethics. They've got a uh, <laughs> faster upward trajectory. I really believe that our community does. And there are mm -hmm. people that are living in success or moving towards success and success is never easy. Can you comment on why success is way more of a burden than an unsuccessful person would realize? And then if we're preparing for it, can you give me a little bit of um, language around it? What do I need to do? If I'm God's blessing me, if my business is growing, if I'm finally achieving my dreams and recognizing my dreams might be a little bit of a nightmare, what do I do? How do, how do I be good at being successful? Yeah, I think one of the surprising things that happens is um, the loneliness of transitions. That uh, I was just asked a week ago, if, if, you know, is it lonely at the top? I guess they assumed I was at the top. Uh, I see much higher summits than my life, but, uh, but accepting that I've, I've at least achieved some level of being at the top. Um, my response was, no, I have more friends now than I've ever had in my entire life. But what was lonely was in the transitions. Because when, when, when you're at one level of living and you decide, I'm going to discipline myself more. I'm going to take on more sacrifices. I, I'm going to uh, demand more of myself or I'm worthy of more. I think God's designed me to have a greater impact. The moment you begin to elevate all those friends who loved you as you were will not love you anymore. And they will not applaud you. And part of the reason I think that we are not prepared for success is that we think everyone who loves us in our failure will love us in our success. And, but, you know, there's this old phrase that, you know, we don't probably use anymore, but, you know, you have drinking buddies and your drinking buddies are only your buddies when you're drinking. And when you decide to stop drinking, they decide to stop being your buddy. And a lot of us understand that psychologically, that if you're an alcoholic, you got you have to pick new friends. Because if your drinking buddies are still your friends, you're going to be drinking. But a lot of us have underachieving buddies. And they're our friends while we're underachieving. But the moment we decide to step up and become the person God designed for us to be, um, they're not happy with us anymore because they, they only want to have underachieving buddies. A lot of us have, you know, um, satisfied with life buddies. And, and then the moment you say, no, I, I actually think I have a calling on my life and I had to step into that you start losing those. And if you don't lose them, you'll go back to your previous condition. And so I think one of the, re one of the things that people are not prepared for in success is that, is that twilight zone in between the friends you had and the friends you don't have yet. Because what happens when you're in that transition, you're elevating, but the people above you, they're not sure if you're legit. Mm -hmm. 
So they're not inviting you into the friendships. And so you, 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 in a sense, you've outgrown the friends you have, but you haven't grown up into the friends you're going to have. And that's why chapter two is actually between the two relationship chapters. Chapter two is um, you don't need the applause. And I think that every leader who elevates and keeps destroying ceilings and then moves to the next level and destroys another ceiling and moves to the next level actually moves without applause. If you stay where you get the applause, you will stagnate. You have to keep growing well, through a stage where you get no applause because people aren't sure if they agree with where you're going and are not sure if the, if the price you're paying is worth the goal you're trying to achieve. That's powerful. And that, uh, that ties into this quote that I put down in my notes. You said, you have to choose between acceptance and uniqueness. If you're addicted to affirmation, you'll become what others want you to be rather than who you were created to be. Talk to me about mm-hmm. that, the difference between acceptance and uniqueness. Yeah, that, that quote is very personal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, years ago, someone came up to me and they said this and they thought I would agree with that. They said, I'm amazed how you do not need to be loved by other people and liked by other people. And the exact opposite was true. I so desperately wanted to be loved and to be liked. Mm -hmm. And he was actually talking about all the leaders in the Christian faith. (laughs) You know, he thought I just didn't care. And the truth was, Craig, I cared so much. I, you know, when I became a person of faith, I was in college. You know, I never wanted to be like seen as a heretic or, or seen as an outlier or, you know, seen as a rebel or antagonistic, you know, to the movement of Jesus. Um, and I had, and I had to make a really difficult choice. And I, I cannot tell you how many conversations I would have with my wife in the living room. And I would say, I think that this isn't real or true. I think, I think our thinking is bad here. And I think I need to speak into this. And Kim would say to me, please don't say that. Please, please don't talk about that outside of the house. And she was just, she would try to mitigate me and she'd tell me, honey, could you just do it this way? Or could you dress this way? Or could you say this? And, and, and my wife so much wanted me to be loved. And, but I think it's, I look back and I realize it's because she could see the pain I was in mm-hmm. and knew that I wanted acceptance. And, and one of the difficult choices I had to make throughout my life, Craig, is, um, if I choose acceptance, it means I'm also choosing conformity. And, and, and maybe it's, it's about design. You know, maybe some people, their natural space is in that space that I would call conformity. I'm just not designed like that. And, uh, and so what I discovered early on is that everyone has a personal uniqueness mm-hmm. that no one else will understand. Mm-hmm. Everyone has an expression of their own God-given uniqueness that I think should be protected, but no one will protect it but you. Right. And, and so if you're willing to give up what makes you unique, everyone will be happy for you to surrender it. Yeah. I, so I could, I could talk for hours about this. The, I like the word unique. The word I would use even is extreme because there are, there are some, like, like you've got some extremes. And I, those are the things I like most about you because if you're not extreme somewhere, you're not going to be great anywhere, right? And I agree. Con- conformity, everything in culture tries to pull us to be conformed. 
And from a spiritual standpoint, even we're told in Scripture, you know, do not be conformed That's to right. the patterns of this world, but be transformed. How? By the mind shift. There's a little uh, little book plug for you right there. By the renewing of your mind. And so I love the fact that you are, you're different. You approach leadership from a different vantage point. You reach people and impact people that others couldn't because of your uniqueness. So when I look on Erwin, I see a guy from a distance that, man, this guy has it all together. But we all know when we're up close and vulnerable, it's not always easy. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd love to know if you're comfortable sharing, is there a limiting factor for you right now, a current fear, a bad mindset where you need a mind shift? Is there is there something that's holding you back, weighing you down, something you're trying to change about you that you're willing to share with us? It's funny when you ask that, Craig. I wish I could say, yeah, nothing comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> like, no. You want the whole list or just the top three, right? Yeah. Well, I'll give you the one that, this morning, yep. I'm sitting with my wife having coffee, um, sharing with her my struggle. Hmm. So it's, it's not a back burner. Um, there is a certain personality type that feels incredibly comfortable, like selling themselves, selling their ideas, selling the, um, their contribution to the world. And, they're, and a lot of them are my friends. And I, and I, and I told my wife, I said, it's so natural for them to believe that everything they create is the most important thing in the world. And so they're just really good at selling. And, but I, when I first started writing books, Craig, I would say, Hey, you don't need this book. You know, all you need is the Bible, but you know, if you have a chance, pick it up. Like I would, I would apologize for everything I created. And what's the root of that? Do you think? I don't know if I ever properly dealt with, the deep sense of insignificance that I felt in my childhood, mm-hmm. that I didn't feel like um, I deserved success. And, um, and, and so I, I do think I, I have that, that, that shadow inside of me that, uh, and, and frankly, faith in this didn't help. It actually hurt because uh, I wanted everyone in the Christian world to affirm what I was doing. And every time you do something different, you get a lot of haters. And I'm like, oh man, I don't ever want to dishonor Jesus. I don't ever want to do anything that reflect Jesus badly. So I have this over like overdeveloped conscience where I go, I, I don't ever want to communicate anything in a way that's improper. So it actually limits me from expressing how excited I am about something or how much I believe in something. And 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 so I, I've actually tried to deal with some of that. This friend of mine. And actually, you, you, you know, um, Jamie and uh, Jamie Lima, she came up to me one day because we we're doing, I was taking them through the psychological assessment and they saw mine and, and she came up to me really upset and she said, why would God give you such gifts without a drive to take it to the whole world? And, and I kind of like fell back and I said, but I do have a drive to take it to the whole world. And she was like, nah, you, you would know it. Like, it, you know, she just confronted me. And so what's really helpful to me is have people in my life who actually believe in me. And this may sound weird, Craig, you know, I mean, I've written like a dozen books and, you know, I've, I made some impact in the world and I've been in a lot of different industries, uh, but I always have this deep sense of inadequacy. And, um, and so I suppose it's what everyone calls it, the imposter syndrome. You know, I'm always shocked. I mean, when, when people started paying me six figures to coach them one-on-one, 
I, I thought, I, is this stealing? Like, you know, is this right? You, you know, am I worth this? And, uh, and so I always, I always have to fight this and remind myself, uh, I've worked, you know, for, you know, 45 years to develop the unique contribution I can make in the world. I have to remind myself that it's okay for me to believe that I have something worthwhile to give to the world. Yeah. I, I can imagine, Erwin, right now, just, you know, a lot of people listening that are kind of right in the middle of what you're saying. It, sometimes the most outwardly successful people are the most inwardly insecure, right? It's almost like we're trying to prove to somebody, um, a dad who's no longer here, a parent, ourselves, mm -hmm. the haters from school, the people that picked you last, you know, for um, yeah. whatever kickball, uh, you're trying to prove something. And so there's there's almost an ongoing sense. I, I almost have a theory to really be God-honored and, and successful. You have to have a very rare mix of deep and abiding confidence, and at the same time, a very genuine and sincere humility. And so mm -hmm. they're both. It's not, a, it's not an insecurity and an arrogance. It's a humility and a confidence. Yeah, and I think it's, it's an interesting um, chemical compound. If you can see behind me, I have, I have Daredevil everywhere. And um, I have all these art pieces. And a part of it is that Daredevil is, I grew up with graphic novels and um, Daredevil is probably my favorite superhero. And it's because he was blinded by a tragic accident when he was a kid. And so what all people, what people could see was this person who was disabled, but they couldn't see the superpowers that were hidden within him. And then his and then his moniker was that he was the man without fear, and even as a kid, I just told myself, it doesn't matter if other people can see the talent in you. It doesn't matter if they they can't see the superhero that's hidden inside of you. You just have to know. Hmm. And I actually made my superpower uh, to be a person that would be experienced as a man without fear, which is ironic because I was afraid of everything. Interesting. And. Uh, but I used fear to my advantage. And one of the things I try to teach people is how to use fear to your advantage. I mean, I spent, what, 10 years working with drug cartels, with assassins, with, you know, uh, gangs. And, and um, I mean, I've, I've been in buildings where cocaine was stacked to ceilings and oozing machine guns guarded the doors. And, and, you know, I've walked the streets of Damascus and flown into Pakistan at the threat of my life and, you know, and uh, crossed through Lebanon to Syria and, you know, I just, I, I picked the most dangerous places in the world and I've gone there. And a huge part of it was that um, I knew I was a fearful person. And I knew that whatever I feared establishes the limits of my freedom. Mm. And so I decided that I would use fear to my advantage. I would leverage it. Whenever I was afraid, I would move fast in that direction. And and so there is this, like this, this sense inside of me where I know I'm full of insecurities and I know I'm full of inadequacies. And, and so whenever I see a ceiling, I go at it hard mm -hmm. and, and I don't care. See, I've, I've failed so many times that it's, it's irrelevant to me whether I fail. Yep. Uh, but I don't think that you develop your legend by never failing. Well, I actually think you kind of like you build a legend by running toward the impossible mm. and then proving to everyone it was always possible. I'm going to ask you more about that. But first, one more time, I want to just talk about the book. It's called Mind Shift. Just recently, Alan, it doesn't take a genius to think like one. And most people who know Erwin well would, would call him a genius. He is a, he is a 
creative, artistic, leadership genius. And so to hear from one who kind of is, but wouldn't see himself that, to tell me I could be brilliant without having to think like, um, uh, without actually being brilliant is, is helpful to me. I'm going to ask you a closing question before that. If someone wants to get to know more about you, uh, where do we find you, Erwin? Yeah, the easiest place to go is to erwinmcmanus.com. And then you can have access to everything I do. I have an online mastermind community called The Arena that people can join through membership and everything we create is available there for free. And I think it's just, it's the best place if you want to have ongoing engagement with me and what we create here. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate your heart to serve other leaders and do it from a faith perspective. I want to close out with this question. And it seems to me like we've known each other for, for quite a while that mm-hmm. that you have you've broken through ceiling after ceiling after ceiling. And there was a time when you kind of almost decided not to. It seemed like that you just kind of pulled back a little bit, and then you came back with really more passion than ever before. One of the things I love about you, uh, among many, is that you have a faith based mindset and a broader impact to help people that don't. You you are accepted broadly, and you love people and help them in a way that is God honoring, but is also not, doesn't repel them away, which in fact, if we, if if we do it, God honoring, it should never, but oftentimes Christian leaders don't get it right. You talked about fear and I'd love for you to talk to somebody right now that is afraid of being bold in their faith. They're afraid of taking a risk. They're afraid of starting the ministry. They're afraid of succeeding. They're afraid of not succeeding. I've said before that what you fear the most often reveals where you trust God the least. Mm. It seems to me that you have faced fears over and over and over again. You're nervous walking in. You don't feel like you're worthy enough, but you continue to get things done. Talk to me. Build my faith to overcome my fears, to get a little mind shift, and uh, to truly become the person I was created to be. That's a big question, Craig. And and I would say, first of all, fear is a wonderful reminder that we're designed for faith hmm. because all fear is, is a negative projection of the future. And so fear is the shadow side of faith. Hmm. So when a person says, you know, I'm not a person of faith, I can guarantee you they are a person of fear mm-hmm. and because something fills that space where you engage the future. And, and for me, once I realized that I lived in a relationship with the creator of the universe and that he designed me to be a part of the creative process and that the future wasn't something to be feared. It was something to be created. It was something to be engaged with, with, with hope and optimism, with compassion and generosity and courage. It just made me so excited about life. Every day you should wake up knowing that you're a created being that's created to create. Hmm. The same way that bees create honey and silkworms create silk and beavers create dams, humans create futures. You are designed by God to be a part of the creative process of creating a beautiful future. Whenever you're filled with fear, it means that you have allowed the vacuum of your creative essence to be shaped by such negative thoughts and a negative view of yourself, of God, of the world, and of the future that you're going to actually create the future you fear. Hmm. And so it's so important. And I don't know, honestly, I don't know how someone does this life without Jesus. And, you know, for me, Jesus is not supplemental. Jesus is essential. It's, it's Jesus that informs every aspect of my being. I'm not 
faith bathed. I'm, I'm faith drowned. I'm like faith immersed. Every fiber of my being is an expression of this conviction that you are not an accident, that you are not insignificant, that your life is not arbitrary, that you are not fated, that you actually are created to create. You're imagined to imagine that you are a work of art and an artist of work. And so the question is not, will you create a future? It's what kind of future will you create? And that to me is the most important question to ask yourself. Why did God put you on this earth? Not to survive and not even just to thrive, but to create. And when you create, you become the purest expression of God. That's why you're Erwin McManus. Yeah, that's incredibly powerful. And um, I, I take that to heart and would just say to our community, I love, I love you. I love our, I love our family. Um, some of you may say we haven't met, and it's like I don't really care. I mean, I just, I genuinely care so much about you. And I pray that you take Erwin's words to heart. That you were, you were created by a good God. You've been given unique gifts, um, and you are created to create. And you can create a better future. You can create a business that is not just profitable, but provides jobs for people and makes a difference in life. You can change legacies. You can create ministries that would serve people around the world. And Erwin, you have done that. You've, um, you've created great businesses. You've created uh, life-altering ministries. you touch lives all over the world. And mine is one of them. I'm honored to call you a friend. Um, the book is Mind Shift. It doesn't take a genius to think like one. I hope those of you in our community will um, dig in, find out more about Erwin and learn from him for years and years to come. You will be blessed. For our YouTube community, um, I want to give some books away. We've got five books to give away. Just type in the comment section, I want a mind shift. I want a mind shift. If you're listening on somewhere else and you want to go to YouTube, drop one in, you better do it quick because we'll give those away at the end of the week after this drops. And Erwin, uh, thank you for being on. Um, you're a great friend. And um, you mean so much to me. Thank you for your time. Craig, thank you so much, man. I always love having conversations with you. Same to you. To our community, if you want to get uh, more information about Erwin, we've got detailed notes for you. Go to life.church slash leadership podcast, and we will get you the study guide that comes out each um, with each episode to cover with your team. Hey, guess what? We got better today, which is good news because we know that everyone wins when the leader gets better. 